I'm Benson Varghese, and I'm sitting down with Christopher Monroe, who was a client of mine after he was arrested for being involved in a drug conspiracy. Christopher's journey before going to prison and before becoming my client and his journey through prison and after prison are compelling. Today, we're going to continue telling Chris's story, picking up with his college career. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. How are you? Good. Thank you for being here. I know it. Uh, there are a lot of moving parts to getting you here, and we're very thankful that you take the time each month to come sit down with us and provide so much information that is helpful to people who might be facing federal prison and contemplating, hey, is there really hope for me after this? So thank you for sharing your story. Happy to be here. So let's pick up with your college career. Where did you go to college? I went to college in the University of Idaho. And as we talked about in the last episode, lots of colleges were interested in recruiting you. They were. Uh, lots of colleges. I had a lot of opportunities to uh, go to different spots. Unfortunately, at this point in my in my life in high school, I wasn't exactly the uh, stand-up student that I that uh, that that I should have been or that I could have been. You mean academically? Academically, yeah. So. Uh, you know, um, I did visit a few schools, but after uh, running into a special character in my life uh, by the name of uh, Stephen Forbes, who's now the head coach at Wake Forest, uh, we hit it off. And um, I picked the University of Idaho because uh, it seemed like a place where I could go and make a, an instant impact. So it was uh, it was a no brainer for us and my family as we you know milled through the decision and, and, and we're thinking about my best interest. Uh, University of Idaho was uh, a bright spot for me, we thought. You mentioned Coach Forbes yes. and making that decision to pick this university. Yes. What excited you about the path forward? Why did you make that decision? And, and perhaps what did Coach Forbes say to you that really resonated with you? Coach, Coach Forbes had this uncanny ability to sort of connect, right? He was a great connector. He had the ability to uh, help you see uh, what you were capable of. And at this point in my life, I was just, you know, as good as I was, I was still uncertain. And so when I ran into coach Forbes, he was just this, just energetic filled, fiery guy that, you know, really helped me believe that this next step in my life was critical to being, to ultimately being a successful person. And, uh, he was a guy's guy. I guess, you know, like in, 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 a, uh, in a place in my life where I didn't have very many like tough nosed guys, guys kind of sort of attitudes, man, he was just a magnet. You know, when I met him, I instantly knew that I wanted to play for him. Uh, so he was unlike any other coach I had spoken to. Fantastic. And that really helped you make your decision and say, this is a leader I want in my life. This is the team I want to be on. Yeah, absolutely. He had the he had like just unique ability to sort of be one of the fellas and then be that father figure and be that like that voice of reason to challenge you to be better. Uh, he was somebody I wanted to be around. He was somebody I gravitated to. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to gravitate or I didn't get to spend much time with him. But, uh, you know, he was. He was uh, the reason why I picked the university. I don't think it was the university itself or how beautiful it was. It was just, you know, like he was somebody I thought I could really pick up a lot from. So you start your college career with a lot of hopes, but college ends up being somewhat disappointing in a number of ways. Talk to me about that. College life wasn't particularly the greatest thing for me. Like I, it, 
It was, but for all the wrong reasons. Co- college for me was a, a, a very sad time. It was a time where uh, I was extremely homesick. Uh, the hustle and bustle of the of the college life was a bit much for me. It, it seemed overwhelming at times. I think every individual or you know every incoming freshman sort of feels that pressure. Uh, unfortunately, I just wasn't able to deal with it in a healthy way. Uh, my coping mechanisms were were skewed, and uh, um, so so college quickly became a place for me that was not was not filled with a lot of brightness. It was a uh, it was a time of uncertainty for me. It was a t- it was a time where when you should be feeling like you fit in, uh, you you feel like you're an outcast. Uh, for for what reasons, I I still don't really understand. Um, I, I never fully embraced the college experience in the way that one would think I should embrace it as a student athlete with you know uh, God given talents, uh, lots of upside, bright future. Uh, I just never was able to embrace or grab onto the concept of the college life for an upcoming sports kid. There was like freshman orientation uh, and all the the glitz and glamour that you hear about more moreover, like the things that you see on TV uh, about how it's supposed to be just this energetic, fun, loving uh place full of camaraderie, football games, beer, uh uh, team spirit, you know, that was, that was, that was present for, for me and, and real for me for probably the first, you know, month. So you're 18, you've started college. There are certainly a lot of great things that you like about being a student. Did you gravitate towards the athletes or who did you end up hanging out with most of the time? I wanted to gravitate towards the athletes at first. Uh, I had this, this I really yearned and wanted to be a part of a unit. I think I think you know, if you were to ask me what one of the things I was excited about, I had really big dreams of of belonging to something greater than myself. You know, something that I found in uh, in in skateboarding. We talked about skateboarding before and how I how I I really loved the camaraderie and I was attracted and enamored with the next man helping the next man. Um, when I got to college my expectations were really fell short. I, I, uh, on my team visit, I thought that I thought that we would be a team. Uh, everything was great. And the more time I spent in Idaho quickly, I began to realize that it was not as I had thought it was going to be. It was more like a splintered sort of, uh, two guys over here, one guy over here. Uh, I don't remember, fellas on the team calling to go work out or together or do things together. It was just a really splintered scene for me. And I couldn't, I couldn't get my footing. I felt, uh, I just felt isolated. I, I had come from California. Most of these guys were, uh, coming from different parts of the country, Midwest, uh, the South. I felt like a black sheep. So I, I sought out like, like people and, what, what ended up happening was the like people that I sought out were people who were not typically resembling the people that I hung out in San Diego. They looked like it, but there was an alternative lifestyle that uh, I was about to be submerged into that I was unaware of, which was like the rave scene and the counterculture there, which was a really big party scene. Um, and unfortunately, 
that's the group of people or uh, the crowd that I found my comfort in when I was unable to find my comfort as a unit with the team. So here you are on the team. Sounds like lots of talented individuals, but not the cohesiveness or the sense of being a team that you were expecting when you came to Idaho. Yes. And you found friends in other arenas, as you said, some that resembled, but were very different from the folks that you knew in California. Yes. What came first? Was it the introduction, the further introduction to the music scene there? Because I understand you at some point became a DJ. Yes. Or was it an introduction into drugs? It was uh, it was a, a mixture of, of both. Um, one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced in my life. And, you know, it, w w the lens that you determine or the lens that you decide to look through it, I guess you can determine it as a bad experience or a good experience. But nonetheless, it was powerful for me. Uh, it was uh, I had always had a love for music as a, as a young kid. Music was constantly playing in my in my household when I was young. It would always just be jamming my sister, my mother everybody around us. So music was a really big deal for me. Um, and I've always been somewhat of a dreamer. And it, it, it only took one time, Benson, for me to be in a club under the influence of drugs and then watching somebody manipulate the music the way that these DJs were manipulating the music. And I don't know how to explain exactly what happened, but uh, there was no turning back for me. It it changed my life. It changed how I viewed things. It changed how I felt about things. It changed it changed my perspective in life. These drugs did. They started they started to do something to me where like all I thought about was music. All I thought about was spinning records. All, like it was a mixture of both of them. And 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 like it, it, when it came together, there was no stopping it. It was like a it was like a train hit me. And uh, man, this is the this is where I'm headed. This is what I really want to do. And it's it's unfortunate, right? Because drugs will create a false reality for you. But when I went to a club the first time and I tried ecstasy for the first time and I watched these uh, DJs play this music, something inside of me happened. It, it altered me. So let's talk about that first time. Here you are in Idaho. You show up at a club because you want to listen to the music. And you want to hang out with some people that you've met. How do you first get drugs? Does someone offer it to you? What's that first experience in Idaho like? I think it was like the it was the typical seeking out of drugs, right? Like I didn't go to the club with the intent to seek out drugs, but I did go to the club and run into several people that I had brush shoulders with and saw that they were having a great time um, and wanted to have a, a good time, right? What, what's one time going to do? Well, you know, uh, I could surely do it one time and get away with it. And uh, that was the tipping point for me was, uh, hey, can you get me one? So up to this point in life, had you tried anything else? Had you tried marijuana? I, I, uh, I had tried marijuana with a high school friend and I had done, uh, a minimal amount of drinking, you know, when I say minimal juxtaposed to, you know, the average high school kid at, in high school, I wasn't, I wasn't focused on drugs. So, so I did try it, but it was not a habitual thing, a weekly thing, a month, like it was few and far between. And it was. It wasn't anything that I sought out on a constant basis or talked about. It wasn't anything that, you know, held a spot in my life. So here you are imagining what's me trying this one time going to do. Obviously, that changes your life entirely. How do you go from someone listening to music who's passionate about music 
to actually being able to spin records. How did that opportunity come about? I, I, I think I sort of kicked the door down and made it happen, right? Uh, I've always sort of had a knack for fitting in or, or you know, uh, finding a way to rub shoulders with important people, it, it, uh, you know, for lack of words. But um, when I saw when I saw what they were doing with the music and I and I registered how it made me feel, obviously, the next step was how can I be in this state of mind and manipulate the music myself? Because, you know, I'm high in the club and I'm thinking about things and I'm like thinking, oh, that record should have dropped there and it didn't. OK, well, I want to make the record drop there. So. Uh, you know, it was a small college town and there was local DJs and there was a local DJ that I really gravitated to. Uh, and throughout my continuing to go to the club, I eventually broke ice, told him I'd like to do, you know, and then, you know, I remember his response. Don't you play for the team? Why are you even here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, just sort of dismissed that and don't worry about it. It's cool. I just want to learn how to spin records. Can you, you know, can you make some time for me to spin some records? And, uh, the rest was history. I started not only going to the clubs and getting high, but then I started going to the clubs, getting high, going to the after parties, playing on the turntables, you know, learning, paying my dues, sort of wrecking a couple mixes, getting a couple booze, but you know, like that's how it happened. It was a come to the club, get high, come to the club, get high, meet people, meet people, Find out what you want to do. Go do it. So here you are. You've taken ecstasy. You've kicked down a door. You found a new opportunity. In your mind, there are a lot of things that are going right, things that you like. But there's also a darker story here. So what happens with the drug use? Psychologically, the drugs gave me a spiritual I don't know. I don't know any other way to explain it, but call it a spiritual like enlightenment. It opened my mind and it let me see things in such a different way that I didn't want to see things any other way. I was at peace with things. Um, and once I tried those drugs, I didn't want to live my life any other way. Life was painful. Life was tragic. Life was uh, challenging. It was demanding. And when I was under the influence of these drugs, I didn't feel the pressure of any of that. I didn't have to worry about it. I, I felt like I had things figured out. I felt like uh, life was, I felt like life was bigger than the opportunities that God was giving me. Like, like that it was like it paled and it, this opportunity with basketball paled in comparison to the things that I was learning and feeling on these drugs. So it became an every day. It went from like an every week to an every day to a, to a way of life for me, for my uh, time at Idaho. I, I, I guess, you know, like it's, it's just a really hard thing to explain to somebody who has never ever experienced uh, the mind altering properties or, or, or effects of these drugs. These drugs are so powerful and they do something to you that is so extreme. And it was just like such a good experience. I just wanted to figure out how can I balance this and this, because if I have this and I combined it with this, I'm just going to be like this superhuman or this super intelligent understanding 
a peaceful warrior. I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to, I'm struggling right here, but, uh, because it's, it's, it, it's such a feeling that I don't know if words can, can hold it. Completely changed your perception on life. Yes. And so that desire to somehow balance the drug use and what drugs were you using at this point while you're still in Idaho? Okay. So at this time I'm using acid, mushrooms, and ecstasy. Most people who haven't tried those substances would imagine, how are you even functioning? But getting back to this idea of in your mind, you want to balance the feelings that you get from DJing, being able to alter your outlook on life through the drugs, seemingly give you some hope. How did that balance with what you were expected to do on the team? Were you able to show up? And if so, for how long? I was I was able to show up. I was able to show up. Uh, and practice. I did it quite often. I, I did it. I did it more often than not. Um, you know, at this young, at this time, I'm, I'm young. I'm I'm fit. Uh, I'm just I'm just able to go. I'm just I'm a beast. I'm tearing through everything. I'm I'm running through every party. I'm running through every scene, every every show, and then I'm just returning. I'm practicing. Uh, nobody's saying anything. Uh, you know, I think I got this. I think I got it licked. I think I got, I think I got it wrapped up. I think everything's under control. It didn't really affect me until the drugs started to lose their effect. Like, and, and other drugs come into play at this time. Um, some pain pills and some Adderall come into time, come into, come into the, to, to the, uh, to the, to the game for me. So Chris, as you're sitting here sharing this with me, some of our audience is going to think, glorifying drugs. But the reason I'm walking you through this and asking you to share is there are going to be people who are tempted to go down this path or are at the beginning of this path who think, hey, the rest of the world doesn't understand. So this is raw. This is honest. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of you digging deep to, to share this with us. But walk us through how the drugs at this point were really changing your outlook on life and yourself. The drugs began to take away like my, my, my ambition for, for life and to be successful. Uh, it started to shape in me a, an attitude of minimalism. Like I didn't, I didn't care about, I didn't care about other people's opinions because at this point now, like I was sort of this enlightened character. I, uh, you couldn't tell me anything. I had things figured out. It gave me a false lens to look through life at, and I really believed in it. I believed that everything that was happening or that everything that I was getting from those drugs was bigger than the, was bigger than my bigger picture. And, uh, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I don't know to this, to this, I, was I not doing it? Was I, was I just doing this? Cause I didn't want to work. Cause I just didn't want to fail. Was I, was I, was I, was I lashing? I don't, man. You know, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, you started with ecstasy. You tried other drugs before you get to things like painkillers. And you mentioned the drugs weren't having the same effect on me. Was that experimentation? Was that X isn't cutting it for me alone? I'm going to try acid. Walk me through the progression and and lead me to why you started taking pain pills. 
I think I think there's like in any in any drug culture or any arena that you're in where you're using drugs. I think there's always this this uh, attitude of trying to push it to the limit. And when you when you continually push, you continually bring yourself to a, a higher state of uh, being high. And uh, at first, you know, it was it was ecstasy. Then it was uh, ecstasy and a couple, you know, shrooms. Then it was uh, ecstasy and shrooms. Then it was, uh, you know, uh, drinking before. Then, then and it, you know, you keep adding to your bag of tricks and uh, until it's full. And there's really nothing left you can do with it. And if you're at this point, like I was in my life, if you're an adrenaline seeker or if you're somebody who's just living for excitement or living for that next big moment, you, you, you run out of things to mix. You run out of things to try. You run out of uh, risks to take. And uh, when that started happening, uh, I think, I think, I think a crack began to emerge in my, in my, like my, the construct and the way I was thinking about, uh, how life was, how life really was right at this point, everybody was telling me how life really was, but they didn't know what, what was going on. I knew what life was because I was just sunk into this drug stupor, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so the drugs started to wear off. By happenstance, I got injured one day and uh, I sprained my ankle, you know, typical, typical basketball injury. I went to the, the, the college doctor. They prescribed me some uh, hydrocodone. At this point, <clears throat> I had never really, I had never taken a pain pill, but they did prescribe me some hydrocodone. And um, I'll never forget the moment where I found out that the drug that I was taking was going to get me high. I, I didn't know that when I was taking it, the first couple times that I had taken it, it was going to get me high. But then I had a, a buddy who, who said, Hey, whoa, you have these pills. And I said, yeah, my ankles messed up. And he said, Oh, don't you know, you can get high off those things. I said, what? And, uh, next thing, you know, tried it. I, I, tr I tried it with the, with the mind state of, you know, Hey, this is going to get me high. And, um, man, it was off to the races. It was another thing to add to the bag of tricks. But unfortunately what I didn't know was, that the, you know, prolonged use or the come down of these drugs was going to drastically affect my life. Uh, but that's where I was introduced into pain pills. Um, but that's not necessarily where I took off with my opiate addiction, but that's where I was first introduced and got an idea of what these things were capable of. Would you say your opiate addiction became full blown while you were still in college? My opiate addiction began in college, but like, I, so, so my opiate addiction was sporadic. And look, if you could, if you could imagine like a heartbeat, a heart monitor, it, it sort of looked like that. It had peaks and valleys, uh, where I would be substituting other drugs for, uh, for, for other drugs. Um, <clears throat> there was a, there was a time in college where I can remember, uh, where I was bad on pain pills to the point where, uh, I knew that they were, uh, pervasive on, on the campus. And since I lived in a college dorm, it wasn't uncommon for me, uh, to randomly be knocking on doors wow. of people that I knew, uh, people that I, that people that I knew who were associated with people that I knew, uh, you know, I'd be sick asking for pills, explaining his stories, coming up with, you know, excuses as to why I needed them. Um, but yeah, it did. It, 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 it had a small spike there for me. Um, 
but I managed to sort of finagle myself and my, my way out of it. But I did have a rough spell while I was there uh, with the pills and um, they revisited me back there. They revisit me, you know, further down my, 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 my drug usage. But when do you start to see the negative effects on your college career and what were they? You know, there was like, I, I talk about in my drug, in my, in my, in my drug addiction, I talk, I talk a lot about these lucid moments that are, that come f- few and far in between and they're, they're, they're fleeting for the most part. But, uh, you know, I had a, I had a, they started to happen more and more. I remember, I remember going home for the summer and I went home for the summer with, uh, it back to San Diego and I ended up staying with some friends and, uh, some friends of mine were asking me what I was doing and what was going on. And, uh, I remember, I remember their disappointment in me and, uh, my friends, you know, at this point in my life were all that I had, all that I really had, all that I, you know, my, my friends back home were, were priceless. They were my everything. And I remember being crushed by some of their comments to me, like, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you taking this seriously? Uh, and I, I'd be lying if I if I told you that I didn't understand why they didn't understand what I was doing, you know, because at this point, obviously, these drugs were taking over me. And I mean, I'm in college and I'm, I'm having the college experience. Right. So why were they disappointed? Was it academics? Were you not doing well on the team or had you shared with them what you were doing outside of campus? Yeah, I Honestly, I, I came home and shared with them what I was doing because I thought it would be cool. I thought that they would, uh, because, you know, all my friends were skaters, surfers, and, and they spent their time doing uh, a considerable amount of partying but, partying, but they always, you know, they were taking care of their business. And so uh, when I was honest with them and told them what I was doing, they were, they understood what I was sacrificing. And... Um, out of a sign of, I guess, real appreciation and love, a couple of my closest friends, my dearest friends told me that they were disappointed in me and really didn't want to have anything to do with me at that point in time because of the sacrifices I was making and how selfish it was, uh, not only to my family, but mostly to myself. How could you have so much talent and want to hang out with, I remember it was, a, it was a, my friend, Adam. Uh, who was a one-time professional skater. And he, he told me straight up, and this was somebody that I had looked up to my entire adolescence. I mean, he was just like, he was the best skater. You know, he was like that guy. And uh, he looked at me and he said, man, you make me sick. Wow. He told me, man, you have so much talent and you want to hang out here with us. You want to hang out and, and do drugs and waste away when you've got all this ability to be successful. And uh, that's something that's never left me. But that's that I think that was the first moment in time where I realized that what I was doing wasn't cool. It wasn't like the, it wasn't the end all be all that this couldn't be sustained. This was uh, a problem. It's resonated with you through all these years. Did it have a short term impact on you? Did that change anything about your immediate behavior? It didn't change anything about my immediate behavior, but what it did was it never left me. It sort of continued to knock on the door. It never stopped knocking. A word of encouragement to anyone that speaks harsh, sometimes hard truths to true friends, right? That you never know what the impact is going to be, however long down the road. Yes. 
Yeah. Another memorable moment for me where I knew that I had fallen by the wayside and that I was uh, in the wrong lane. Uh, I uh, at this at, at this time, you know, I am fully I'm a full blown raver. I wear beads. Um, I wear really skin tight shirts. I wear big baggy bell bottom uh, pants that are altered that have like leopard print in them. Um, I walk around with big headphones on. I am a sight to see at this, at, at this moment. Um, and I had gotten so comfortable and, and felt like I could do whatever I wanted to, um, that one day I decided that, uh, we had a team meeting and one day I decided I was going to show up into the, to the team meeting, um, in full rave gear. I had uh, been to a party the day before. I hadn't showered. I uh, hadn't slept. And so I walking down campus <clears throat> in the middle of campus, just like this, you know, a star athlete walking uh, down the middle of campus with this attire on. Um, and to this point, I think my coaches had heard about what I was doing. They sort of made a couple comments here and there, but they hadn't really addressed the issue. Uh, I had an assistant coach by the name of Chris Jans and, uh, he was a fiery son of a gun. And, uh, I, I, uh, I was walking across the practice football field to get to the Kibbe dome and I'll never forget. I could almost hear him stop. Like he was walking, but I almost heard him stop in his tracks. And I looked and he looked at me and all I heard was cuss words. I heard, I just could hear him snorting, spitting, and he's come marching across that field. And he just, he gave me a dress down that I'll never forget. He said some things that probably aren't appropriate right now, obviously. Um, but in that moment, right, I kind of like, I had this weird experience because there were people around. There were people around. There were football players around. There were track and field players around. There were trainers, everyday people. And uh, it seemed like in that moment, time froze. And I was able to just sort of pan around and look at uh, everybody's reaction. I at, at that moment, I realized I was in too deep. At that very moment, I realized how far away I had gotten from reality. I had, I, I was living in an alternate reality where, uh, records and music were the only way of life. And I instantly snapped out of it at that moment. And he sent me away. He sent me away and told me to, to go to my dorm and that they didn't need me at that team meeting. And, um, that was a hard stop for me. That was a moment in my life where you know, the guilt and the shame really hit me about how much I had wasted. I had wasted quite a bit of time and money uh, and, and, and people's compassion and, and love. Um, and I was able to feel and embrace fully in that moment, all of it. And it crushed me. Up to that point, you'd largely been living two separate lives. And to a large extent, there had been very little overlap. You were somehow able to manage getting high, sleepless nights, and still showing up for practice. But finally, it all kind of came together. And you've talked about this before. What people think of you 
matters to you. Absolutely. So when you're frozen in that moment, getting dressed down and you're panning and you see all these people, perhaps that's one of the reasons why that moment resonated so much for you. It was very public. Everyone in that moment knew something's not right here. And someone that you respected, looked up to, should be listening to, was in a position to have to dress you down and send you away from the team. Yes. Were you there on a scholarship? I was. In large part due to your athletic abilities being on the basketball team? Yes. Are there other examples of how the drug use crept into your performance on the team? Yes. Yes. At, uh, at the very beginning of the, the rave, at the, at the, the rave scene and, and the participation in, uh, you know, uh, my drug use and all of that, it was sort of compartmentalized. And I think everybody goes through that. Like when you pick, especially if you're, you know, you're using drugs, uh, there's this moment where it's like, okay, I got a hold on this. I got a grip on this. I'm not going to do this because I got a game in three days, or I'm not going to do this because I got a team meeting, or I'm not going to do this because I got a visit from so-and-so. And in the beginning, that's how I, that's, that was where I was at. I still had my, my bearings about what I was going to be doing, but towards the end, um, so you could get a better picture of how these drugs were overtaking me. Um, I can recall a, a time when we had, uh, I think it was a three day weekend, but, uh, but the, on the return of the three day weekend, we had a home game, um, on the, on the first day off from that weekend, I got into the car, uh, with a couple of buddies and drove all the way to Seattle, Washington, spent two days in Seattle, Washington, uh, using ecstasy, acid, uh, and uh, spent, you know, didn't no sleep up at a, a, a massive rave, tons of people, tons of things going on. Uh, I spent my whole weekend there using drugs, staying up on the, on the way back. Uh, I can remember, uh, I had acid. I took about seven hits. I think I took about seven hits of acid and we pulled over into a little camping ground. I wandered around for hours and hours and hours in this, uh, camping ground on acid. I was dirty, uh, hungry. I remember, I remember this, but, uh, the next day I had a game home game. And, uh, so I got back to, we got back to the, to the, to the school and uh, I think I had about maybe 15, 16 hours left before it was time to play. And, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with the effects of acid or the time it takes to sort of like come down to a normal baseline, it could be, it could be hours and hours and hours. It could be days. Um, and I took a considerable amount of acid, uh, not only that, but ecstasy as well. And, uh, you know, I took the court full blown high on acid and um nobody ever really said anything to me about it i just uh i have a i have a suspicion that i may not have played uh exactly or been in spots exactly where uh i should have been but uh that's exactly how uh invasive it had become now it was there was no longer uh any rational decision making it was the party is just as important as the game. So when you started playing basketball at Idaho, there were no drug tests for the team. Yes. 
And one day you walk into a team meeting and they suddenly announce you're going to have drug tests. Tell us what happens from there. I remember when they told me I was getting drug tested or the team was getting drug tested. And honestly, like I told you, it was so splintered and things were moved around and people were just sort of doing their own thing. Man, there were people smoking weed on this team. There were people drinking. Uh, so I remember when they said, yeah, we're going to drug test you. I sat I, and at this point I had been using uh I had been doing cocaine, I had been doing ecstasy, I had been doing uh, shrooms, acid, and I'm full of it. I'm full of it. In, the, in this meeting, like if you were to test me, man, I'm dead in the water. But I remember feeling so above everything. I was above any. I was above anybody's foreknowledge of what I could be. I was above any rules. I was above. I was above everything. I remember sitting in that training room and just laughing. Oh, okay, you're going to drug test us? All right. Um, left that meeting and went and got high. About two, three weeks later, I get a call on my cell phone. And it's uh, the trainer. I think his name was Barry. And he said, hey, we're going to need you for a drug test. I said, what? He said, yeah, we're going to need you for a drug test down here in two hours. You, you can make it. You're here on campus. I said, yeah. He said, all right. So, uh, boom, the race is on. I've got two hours. I've got two hours to figure something out. Uh, you know, I've got cocaine. I've got uh, acid. I've got ecstasy, weed, pain pills, everything in my system. So, uh, I immediately start panicking. I go to you know, some of the guys' rooms that I hang out with because they're on drugs. They've obviously got to know how to pass a drug test. You know, I failed to realize that these guys didn't have any ambition, weren't really going anywhere. So they didn't really have to worry about a drug test. So they didn't have any answers for me. Uh, so I went to a football player and I said, hey, man, they're going to drug test me and I need to pass this drug test. And he's, you know, no problem. I got you. So he gives me this drug test. It was just a, like, you know, one of these syrupy bottles, drink this, don't piss for an hour. Don't, excuse me, drink this. Don't, don't go to the bathroom for an hour. Uh, drink a couple gallons of water and you'll be okay. So I'm like, okay. And I'm panicking at this point because now like, here's another lucid moment where you realize, okay, life is life. They're not playing with you. Uh, and uh, so I take the drug test and I'm not, I'm not going to the bathroom like I'm supposed to. So I take a gallon of water and I drink it. <clears throat> and nothing happens. And uh, I take another gallon of water and nothing happens. And at this time I'm bloated and I'm, I'm just really uncomfortable. And uh, I've never drank this much water in my life. And the time is ticking. The clock is, is, is winding down. And finally, I get that call. Um, he's like, you need to come down here. And um, I'm confident. I'm confident that I'm going to pass the test, right? Because the football player gave it to me. There's no way. And even if I don't pass the test, you know, they're going to, they're going to, whatever. So, so I'm drinking this water and uh, I just start getting sick. And I'm getting sick. And, and uh, this is uh, during a weekday. So the campus is full of people and, um, I got to walk to the Kibbe dome. I got to walk there to take this drug test. And so about two minutes after I hit the front door on the way to the, 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 uh, the Kibbe dome to take this drug test, I, I start projectile vomiting. I, I can't stop vomiting. And, uh, 
I'm walking up the campus main, the main split through the campus by the library and uh, everybody knows who I am and I'm just walking and, and I look haggard. Like looking back now, I know that I looked haggard. I had a bottle, I had a jug of water in my hand. I was keeled over. Uh, I was throwing up. My hair was disheveled. I had, uh, I had been partying all week. Um, and I'm walking through the campus and I'm just throwing up. I can't stop throwing up and people are looking at me crazy and I'm trying to like laugh and play it off. And I'm telling them, oh, it's cool. It's cool. Uh, I, and, uh, I get to the, to the, the kippy dome and I'm vomit all over me, uh, water all over me. I can smell it all over my face. And I walk in and then Barry looks at me and he's just shakes his head. He's just I can't quite understand it. And I'm like, I'm ready to take my test, you know? And uh, I took that test and I failed it. And that was, that was the beginning of the unraveling. That was the last straw where I knew I had, I felt like I had worn out my welcome. Yeah. So you fail the drug test. You've had another very public display of having fallen short, everyone that saw you walk up to take that drug test. And it becomes even more public. What happens next? Uh, they, they, on the student paper, they published my, uh, they published my suspension, which was my disciplinary, disciplinary action for the failed UA. They uh, published my picture and uh, you know my suspension in the paper. And then they sat me for, uh, I believe it was two games. They sat me for two or three games. Um, and this was, you know, uh, obviously another indication that, uh, that I was wanted but not needed. And uh, I had always felt like at this point in my life, if I'm to be honest with you, that I was needed there. Right. So at this point, has the bubble burst or is air just slowly starting to leak out of that lens that you were looking through? The skewed lens of my, of, of like, of the, the drug use, the, the, what the drugs had allowed me to sort of construct this sort of alternate reality. Yes. At this point, uh, reality is now creeping into my life. Um, I'm starting to notice people around me, uh, that are happy because they're achieving things that they set their minds out to. I'm starting to realize that I don't have any goals. I'm starting to realize that, uh, there's very little tolerance for me where that when there, when there, when there was at one time, a lot of tolerance and a lot of expectation and hope I'm realize uh, that's a tough thing to deal with too. You know, I realized that people's expectations of me were now becoming, uh, diminished. They, uh, weren't really concerned with, uh, the things that uh, I would complain about or need, obviously, because they knew that I wasn't investing my time soundly. But uh, yes, this was a this was the this was a tough time for me. This was an unraveling moment. Uh, reality. This is when reality started to uh, show me who was king. We talked a lot about your time on the court. But you were also starting to see the impact of at least the sleepless nights, but certainly the drug use academically. And yet initially, 
there too, you turn to drugs. So talk to us about Adderall and why you were taking it. So, uh, so my whole, my whole life I've been diagnosed ADHD. I have had uh, problems with my attention span, uh, quite the wild child into everything, just, you know, aggro, just everywhere all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I had spurts where I would need my medication and spurts where I would not need my medication. Um, Adderall was, uh, was just another thing to mix with. Uh, I first, I, at first I needed the Adderall for good intentions. At first college was hard for me to focus on. Uh, like I said, I was a big, strong kid, but I, I was, I was immature. I was unable, you know, I had some, I had some shortcomings. I had some things that I really needed to work on. Uh, and one of them was adjusting to and learning my role in the fast paced life of college. So, uh, I did, I did at one point say I didn't need it, but there was a, a healthy moment in my life where I was like, you know, maybe I need this medication to sort of help me, uh, collect my bearings, focus on the things that I need to focus on. Cause there are some things that they're expecting me to do. Um, that quickly was erased. We, you know, obviously, uh, when I found out that you could get high on Adderall, I, it's, it's the, it's the craziest thing. Uh, I took it for years and years and years and never knew, never felt, never understood. But once some of the feelings that the other drugs I had taken triggered it were triggered in me. I now this, this medication that had been helping me had sort of like the veil had been torn away from it. And I realized that it was a substance that now had a likely or a, a relationship to the feelings that I was feeling in the club. And so I started to abuse it. I started to use it for, uh, nefarious reasons. I started to use it to stay awake. I started to use it because, uh, it made me feel good. It, it felt good to take with it, uh, acid and ecstasy. I certainly stopped taking it because of the classroom. Uh, and it became a crutch. It became, a, um, it became an excuse for me to get high, a legal way for me to get high. Uh, it became, it became another problem yeah. for me. At the end of the day, it's another amphetamine. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's another, it's another, you know, it's another drug. And, uh, I quickly, I quickly learned how to, uh, extract its proper use and, uh, take it for what it shouldn't be taken for. So recreational drugs, prescription drugs that ultimately are taken recreationally long-term, how does this impact your college career. Where does your college career go? Do you finish four years at Idaho? I don't finish four years at Idaho. Um, long-term, what happens is, and what happens in most cases, I believe, is that they ran out. Everything began to ran out. People that I partied with were moving away. Uh, places that I now got pills were dry. Um, the guy I used to buy cocaine with now is in jail. Uh, you know, um, the party scene is now moving into, uh, closer to, or across the border into Washington. So things are now starting to get further away from my reach. The further they get away from my reach, the more time I have to spend with myself, uh, and not be so distracted by 
all of these things that were once at my disposal. Obviously, along with that comes the come down. Right. And talk about realities, you know, starting to show its face. Um, when the drugs and the ability to get them became, when it started to get harder and harder for me, I didn't have a choice but to sit with myself and begin to see the trail of disaster. Like to, to be, I, I began to see what I had become. And the clearer that picture got for me, the more certain I was that there was no going back. I did not believe that I could remake myself at the university. I had been seen by too many in the worst, the worst spots. I had been seen by too many uh, buying, selling. Uh, I, I, I just, people had a clear picture of me and I, I, I did not think that I could overcome it. I did not think I could overcome the damage that I had done, the reputation that I had made for myself. Um, and I didn't think I could do it without drugs. And at this point they were almost non-existent now. So I was coming down and faced with reality. So how many years were you there? I started the beginning of my sophomore year there. How were you funding the drug use up to that point? My parents. Did they know what the money was being used for? Any suspicions? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I talked to you about uh, my mother and her battle with uh, her demons and... Uh, I just can't honestly tell you that she couldn't have had an, an inclination of what was going on. You know, I think there's a real common phrase uh, addicts use, and it's, it's if you if you got it, you can spot it. And so, uh, I do believe uh, any individual. You, I don't. I don't think you had to be on drugs to recognize what I was going through or what I was putting myself through. So I believe that my family knew. I just believe that my family didn't know how to react. It was a fragile situation. Uh, they wanted me to be successful. Uh, I believe that they just thought I was going to pull out of it. I believe that they thought it was a phase. I believe that, uh, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but I think that they were blinded by their love and their hope that I would be able to see the great gift that had been bestowed upon me, which was a shot at a college degree, a better life, um, and a chance to represent my family the correct way. So what happens in sophomore year that brings all of that to an end? It's, it's at, it's at this sophomore year that my drug use has, has, has began to decline, not because my appetite for the drugs is diminishing, but because, uh, the drugs are becoming harder to get. Um, I'm no longer able to go to practice in the same state of mind that I want to, which is, you know, under a, a, a hydrocodone and, and, a, and an Adderall where, uh, everything is okay. You know, when I have those drugs, uh, you know, it got to a point like where I'd be traveling and we'd be playing on the road. It, like I would have to have that combination of pills. I would have to have that combination to make sure that my mind and that I was prepared to play. If I, if I didn't have it, even if I didn't feel, even if I didn't feel bad physically, mentally, I, I couldn't function without it. Like, 
so that went on my whole freshman year. And then the transition into the sophomore year, those drugs started to become less and less available to me. And uh, I started to come down from like a year bender. Um, and it was it was too much. I decided that Idaho was not the place for me um, for multiple reasons. Uh, one, because I felt like I had done so much damage that it couldn't be repaired. Two, I couldn't find the drugs. Three, at this point, uh, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. Um, I just felt like it would be better for me to tuck my tail and run than to try to deal with the mess that I had made. So I made a decision uh, after a few conversations with my stepfather uh, and some manipulation <laughs> that, uh, you know, I just wasn't feeling like at this point, my stepfather didn't know that uh, he, he, if anybody didn't know, I, I believe it was him. He didn't know that I was, you know, severely addicted to drugs, but I had a, he had always been my ace. He, you know, he ushered me through this, this process. And just so I'm clear, uh, it wasn't that like, I just hated basketball. There was a process to it and there was a camaraderie between the people and basketball. I just wasn't, it never like turned into anything, uh, that I thought it would be. Uh, but at this point I called for advice or better yet to tell him that I thought that university of Idaho was treating me unfairly. Um, they, they weren't utilizing me properly and that, uh, it would be better for me to leave regroup go to a junior college and then transfer to a bigger school. Uh, you know, and this was all manipulation on my part. I knew that anything, uh, I knew that he would accept anything that had to do with me being a real man and setting, you know, some solid goals and, uh, having a vision for myself. And so I did that and, uh, we went back and forth and he said, okay, if that's what you want to do, I'll, we'll, we'll do it. And, uh, I decided to quit. To go to junior college, uh, to get out of to get out of to get out of Idaho, to get to get out of Idaho, uh, it had become a dark place for me. There were times where uh, I'd be locked in my dorm room for weeks on end, wouldn't come out. Nobody could get me out. Uh, just doing tons of cocaine by myself in the room, paranoid. Um, I was antisocial at this point. Um, I didn't want to be around anybody. Uh, I didn't have very much communication with my teammates at all. Um, it was constant bickering. Uh, I had no communication with it was just, I didn't have any friends. Um, it was just a dark, lonely spot for me. Uh, and I couldn't see myself moving forward. So I decided that it was time for me to leave. Um, and I decided to quit. Where'd you go? I went back to San Diego, but, uh, I'll never forget. I'll never forget the day I quit sort of like, a something else that's never stuck with me about how, about how important it is for you to, uh, honor people who want to help you and to honor them with healthy choices and to not be scared of being vulnerable or asking for help. Uh, I didn't particularly get along with my, uh, with my coach. He was a hard motherfucker. He, he was a hard dude. Uh, his name was coach Farrar and he didn't care too much about why you couldn't do something. He just wanted to know how you were going to fix it. 
the day I decided to quit, I remember I was pacing out in front of the, the Kibbe Dome, the same place where I showed up in those clothes. And uh, I hung the phone up and it's like, man, you know, I'm going to quit. I'm going to throw all this away right now because I know he's not going to let me quit. I know that Coach Farrar won't let me quit. So I walked up there and he just, you know, he did the same thing day in and day out. Coffee, newspaper, a little attitude, same stuff, day in, day out. I went up there, rarely had gone to his office, uh, knocked on his door and he just peeked over his newspaper and he looked at me and I said, hey, can I come in? And he said, yeah, Monroe, come on, come sit in. He had this real raspy voice. So I sat down and uh, he said, what do, you, what do you need? And I said, I want to talk to you about something. And, uh, you know, I started beating around the bush and then I went into this, like, I don't know if I was trying to like chum the water for him to feel sort of sympathetic to my, to the way I was feeling about how I had ruined my own life. Or maybe, I don't know, but, uh, you know, he just didn't buy into it. He just didn't buy into it at all. And, uh, I said, you know, I think you guys are utilizing me the wrong way. I think that, uh, I have better opportunities. I think I'm, you know, I think you're overlooking me. He didn't offer me any, he didn't offer any rebuttal. He just agreed with me, you know, okay. And I told him that I was going to take myself and go somewhere else. And said, man, you know, I don't think this is the place for me. And, uh, he looked at me and he said, you know what? I think you're right. And I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that he felt the same way that I did that if I was honest with myself, I had single-handedly destroyed an opportunity to make myself better. And, uh, he, he, uh, he just, he just said, I think you're right. He said, is that, is that all, is that, is that it? And, uh, a couple of moments, awkward silence, silence. And I, I said, I said, that's it coach. And he said, have a good day, Monroe. That's the day I quit. You know, you go from this mental state where you believe the world needs you, this team needs you, to this conversation with a coach who is not only telling you, I don't need you, he hasn't even verbalized a single reason why he wants you. Right? You've, you've done a 180 from your view on what the world was for you to that moment when you quit. We're going to talk more about your life in future episodes, but as we always do, we want to end on a high note and it's a weird place to pull a high note from. We're going to ask you what's one thing you learned in prison that has positively impacted you and still helps you through. One thing that prison taught me was that no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you've been through, no matter, no matter what you're losing or what you're gaining, uh, you always have an opportunity to get better, no matter where you're at. Chris, thank you so much once again for sharing your story and in doing so, hopefully helping people that either feel like, hey, going to prison is this hopeless situation I'm walking into, or maybe they're much earlier and they're experimenting with drugs and maybe they hear this and they make some different decisions. So thank you again for taking the time. I'm really looking forward to telling the rest of your story. Thank you, Vincent. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Second Shot. We're looking forward to sharing Chris's story in future episodes, so be sure to tune in and subscribe to us anywhere podcasts can be found.